Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although the United States is recognized as the most religiously diverse country in the world, actually, many of its laws and customs reflect a very different reality. That's what Kiathi Y. Joshi, a professor of education at Fairleigh Dickinson, argues in her latest book, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. It's published by New York University Press and brings Professor Joshi to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to and be I'm with sorry. you, Leonard. You argue that in uh, U.S. society, Christianity, and particularly Protestantism, sets the tone and establishes the rules and assumptions about who belongs and who does not, and about what's acceptable and not acceptable in public discourse. But hasn't religious belief always been a part of this country's national identity? It has been, but it's not always been recognized as such. Um, I think because we have uh, freedom of religion in the First Amendment, a lot of people believe that we actually have been um, religion neutral all along from the time the Republic was created. And that's not been the case. Christianity has been there from the get-go, and actually whiteness and Christianity together uh, have been embedded in public policy, Supreme Court decisions, acts uh, related to laws related to immigration and citizenship and so on. And it's even on our currency, and God we trust is on all of our currency. And in my lifetime, the phrase under God was inserted into uh, the Pledge of Allegiance as a way, I guess, of distinguishing us from godless communism. But I actually found what uh, President Eisenhower said when he signed the bill, uh, and this is kind of eye-opening. Um, he said, from this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in American heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons, which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. That's right. That's right. Well, that sounds very religious for a country that uh, supposedly has no, uh, has religious freedom for all. Uh, I guess maybe it, it doesn't include atheists and agnostics. Right. And atheists and agnostics would probably be talking to you about religious privilege, and I'm here talking to you about Christian privilege, mm. right? And I think that uh, the example you bring up in terms of what President Eisenhower said is the exact kind of information uh, that isn't taught, that is lacking in our education around religion, around race, uh, which inhibits us from getting the full picture of what's going on and there what also, has been going on. There are also religions that believe in more than one God. How have the courts interpreted the constitutional guarantee of freedom of religion? Uh, obviously not freedom from religion. Well, we really can see um, Christian normativity arise in several cases. Uh, if you take the case where, um, the peyote case where, um, Native Americans were uh, fired uh, because they had ingested peyote and then failed a drug test. Uh, that's a ritual. That's a ritual that's not there in Protestant faiths, but it was part of their faith, but wasn't recognized as such. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that so many of our 
pivotal cases around religion have been interpreted through a Christian lens because that's the framework the justices were working from. So that gets us to the idea of, you know, it shows right then and there why diversity of voice, why diversity of representation is critical when so many important decisions are being made. Are the words white, Christian, and American often used interchangeably, often in subtle ways that society doesn't even notice? Yes, they really are. Um, sometimes it's uh, covertly done, so sometimes it's overtly done. I mean, to be American um, really has meant to be white and Christian. And actually, that goes back to one of our first laws. Uh, the Naturalization Act of 1790 said you had to be a free white man to be a citizen of this mm -hmm. country. And then in, 95, in 1795, uh, an amendment was made that said, the language was brought in a free white man of good moral character, right? So there we start seeing in explicit language morality, i.e. Christianness, coming in. Um, and that's who could be a citizen. There were uh, changes along the way. African Americans gained the right to citizenship with the 14th Amendment and 1870 Naturalization Act. But, you know, the discussions, when you look at the primary source documents around the discussions that were happening uh, in terms of African Americans getting citizenship, there was a sense since many of them had converted to Christianity, since many of them had accepted Christ, um, it would be okay for them to have citizenship. And a real stark line was drawn between African Americans getting citizenship and how Native Americans and Chinese should not. The discussions I'm referring to are some of the ones coming out of California at the time. And Native Americans didn't get citizenship until 1924, and, and Chinese didn't get citizenship until 1943. Now, was Christian privilege something you were aware of when you were growing up a Hindu in, in Atlanta in the 1980s? Uh, thanks for asking that. Um, I did experience um, a fair amount of white Christian privilege, though I didn't know that's what it was. Um, I just didn't fit in. I was um, a brown little Hindu girl going, growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, honestly, I wasn't black and I wasn't white. So, And you were a Native so, American. And I and you wasn't were Latino. Native American, although... Sometimes people thought that, um, and people continue to still think that when some of us identify as Indian and Indian American. And when I said I was Hindu, or my family would say they were Hindu, um, you know, you got these kind of quizzical looks on people's faces. Um, and I really faced a tremendous amount of bullying and harassment uh, in middle school and high school for being different. Uh, all the while, though, I had a very strong Indian American Hindu community, thankfully. Um, so I was very proud of my religion and culture, just not at school, and I would have done anything to not have brown skin. Is the South a special case? Um, would Atlanta have been considered part of the Bible Belt in the 1980s? And I was just thinking about the proposed new state flag for Mississippi, which will remove the image of the Confederate flag, but now we'll in, use the word, we'll incorporate the words, in God we trust. Right. <laughs> mm. 
we're seeing white Christian privilege everywhere, literally day by day, you know, right now. Um, this, uh, what I experienced um, should not be seen as, well, you grew up in the South and that's why this happened. We have data, um, I have gathered it myself, that became my first book, uh, of these kind of experiences that were um, all over the United States, particularly up and down the East Coast, which is where I interviewed people. And it wasn't just in the 80s. Um, Later on in the late 90s, I was getting married and very much experienced white privilege, Christian privilege, and white Christian privilege because I was marrying a white Christian man. He's Episcopalian. And Mm -hmm. we wanted to have an inter- faith ceremony. Um, His minister would not marry us, so we found someone. So we did officially finally have a Hindu priest and a Methodist minister officiating together, but we couldn't find a venue to hold it because we didn't want to do it in a house of worship. We were turned away from hotels for a variety of reasons. they didn't say it was about the food in some cases, but people brought up issues around food. Uh, we let people know that in the Hindu part of the ceremony, we would have to have a hoven, Leonard, and that's a small fire. Um, but honestly, I, I really believe people heard that we were going to have a huge bonfire <laughs> instead uh-huh. of trying to understand what we were saying, and we couldn't find a place. Um, finally, uh, the hotel that... We had our wedding, uh, was owned by an Indian Muslim man who not coincidentally was familiar uh, with what a hoven is, and he called up the fire chief and said, listen, um, we're going to have this. Can you help us out? Fire chief said, hey, no problem. And they just kind of stayed on ready alert, if you will, because they turned off the sprinkler system for about eight or nine minutes during the ceremony. You know, so there was a will there. Other places didn't even bother to try to understand what they could do. They just said, oh, fire marshal won't allow it. In recent years, haven't we been moving away from uh, some of the things we were talking about to some degree with the repeal of blue laws in in most states? Um, Haven't the, the courts decided that the Sunday laws were a form of discrimination against religions that don't celebrate Sunday as their Sabbath. And, and now in New York, for example, and I guess a number of other states, you can buy alcohol on Sunday. You can, uh, shops can stay open on Sunday. They, they, in New York, when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. Yeah, I, I, when I grew up in Georgia, you couldn't buy uh, alcohol on Sundays and now it has changed somewhat. But you know, I'm in Northern Jersey um, and in Bergen County, we still have the blue laws where shops are closed on mm. Sundays. Really? The thing is, though, is that, you know, the, uh, Christianity is um, deeply embedded, right, in our social and legal structures. So while blue laws have been rescinded in some cases, um, it's also about looking at how Christianity is kind of just part of our, a part of the air we breathe. We're not a religion-neutral society, which is what people think we are. And you suggest that applying a Christian lens to the study of other religions often reduces them to caricatures. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that happens when we try to collect data on um, non-Abrahamic faiths, even, let's say, is the sense that this congregational bias 
is um, put upon them. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, when we want to start the Christian churches, folks will do field work, uh, ethnographic field work, go to churches, see what's going on. They'll go to synagogues and see what's going on. And that's when we start talking about levels of religiosity and what you know, the religion looks like in those places. So what happens is you go to um, a Gurdwara, which is a Sikh house of worship, or you go to a Hindu temple, and then that's seen as what Hinduism or Sikhism is like in America. But that's not the only way those religions are practiced. We have a lot of home worship. We have individual things that are done. Um, and so, you know, researchers need to take a look at how they're approaching the study of but when Jews who, uh, religious Jews who, who can't uh, do business on Saturday complained about Sunday laws, they were often portrayed as wanting special rights. Yes. Um, and that's often what's happened to the conversation around um, religious minorities wanting to take um, their place in this country, if you will. It's worth noting this idea of special rights. Um, really, uh, the, the conservative Christian movement uh, did a wonderful job on messaging, as they often do, and started labeling uh, gay and lesbian folks who wanted marriage equality as wanting special rights. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we hear this language of special rights, um, it has to be a red flag uh, for people who, are, who believe in wanting equity and justice. So when, when Jews were quote-unquote complaining, or there's a sense that other religions should also be recognized, they're not asking for special rights. They're asking to be part of the country the way Christian denominations have been. Equal rights. Equal rights, that's right. Yeah. I'm speaking with Kiathi Y. Joshi, uh, a professor of education at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Her latest book is White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM. The, the Puritan settlement in Plymouth is an important part of the founding story of America. And part of that story of the Puritans is that they were persecuted in England. But when they came here, Weren't they intolerant of other religious views? Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is one of the myths that we have to debunk. And, you know, right now we're starting to debunk many myths around race, and we need to do it around religion as well. We all pretty much kind of in first grade learned that this country was founded on the ideas of religious freedom. But, no, the Puritans were coming here in search of religious freedom only for themselves. Um, and we know this because what happened to the indigenous peoples who were here and the way that Native Americans were identified as savage, um, as uncivilized, at where the Puritans and Christians are civilized. So we have to start reteaching and rethinking some of the really codified parts of U.S. history that are continuing to cause us problems. And we uh, like to think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, and yet uh, policies in Washington these days would suggest something else. I'm not sure that Emma Lazarus would be all that proud of what's going on, considering the, the poem that she wrote that's on the Statue of Liberty. Um, 
you mentioned this, the, the courts. Between 1878 and 1952, 52 court cases, including two heard by the Supreme Court, were argued to determine who would be considered white under, the, under that naturalization uh, the uh, act, the original one that restricted citizenship to free white men. To what degree did the case's uh, outcomes turn on religion? Well, this is um, really fascinating and um, a little complicated and nuanced, but it's such an important part in terms of understanding race and religion in America. So you had folks coming from um, present-day, what we would call the present-day Middle East during that time was called Greater Syria, and people coming from uh, Asia. And people wanted to be citizens. And Asians particularly were identified as aliens ineligible for citizenship. So the folks petitioned the courts, sometimes sued. And in some cases, folks got citizenship, in some cases didn't. Being Christian played a role. I, can't, I would not say that it decisively impacted every case, but it played a role. And in the two cases that went to the Supreme Court, religion absolutely plays a role. So first you have the, the Takawa Ozawa case in 1922, and then you have the Bhagat Singh case in 1923. Now, in 1922 in the Ozawa case, uh, he was Japanese, and he wanted to be a citizen, and he wrote his own brief, and in it he said he takes his uh, children, he takes his family to a Christian church, and he identifies as a Christian. Now, what's significant here is that he was really trying to prove that he was white, because whiteness was the key to citizenship. And this is also the era, Leonard, of uh, scientific racism. And what I'm referring to there are the academic theories that were uh, propagated to prove the superiority of white people and the inferiority of black people and people of other backgrounds fell in between. So the, the courts relied on this scientific racism, and they said, Mr. Ozawa, you are not, you are, you are mongoloid. You are not cockazoid <laughs> based on science. So he was not going to get citizenship. So Thind's lawyers, Bhagat Singh Thind, was a um, Sikh man. Uh, he wore a turban. He had a long beard. He had dark skin. Um, he uh, um, served on in the United States Army um, during World War I. And he was initially granted citizenship, and then it was revoked because the government filed an appeal. And the government, Leonard, said, now I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but not a whole lot, look at this guy, he's not going to fit in. And so his case goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And what Finn's lawyers did is they argued he was a high-caste Hindu, therefore trying to claim that he was Aryan. And again, remember, this is the time of scientific racism. So there is this idea that folks from northern India were Aryans coming from the Caucasus Mountains, i.e. light-skinned, i.e. Caucasian. Hmm. So that's what his lawyers were arguing. And the Supreme Court, the justices said, you may be Caucasian, but you are not white as the common man understands you to be. 
So wow. right and even, there. So he wasn't granted citizenship. He was not granted citizenship. Well, now there are many Sikhs who are considered American citizens, but there have been debates over whether they should be allowed to serve in the military with cash and unshorn hair and a dust star, the, the turban, or whether we, uh, and then, the, well, there's also the matter of serving pork in prisons to accommodate Muslim and Jewish inmates. Uh, so uh, these are these are things that we uh, kind of don't even think much about, uh, but they are really important, aren't they? I mean, they're all part of the story that you're telling. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And whenever uh, these rights are uh, often granted, um, they've done so because people have fought for them and, you know, had to ask for them and fight for them. I think the other piece is, is that whenever you hear, you know, this question, well, should we allow um, pork not to be served in prisons to accommodate Muslim inmates, or should we allow Sikhs to serve in the military? What that should also tell us is that we're talking about these issues against a white Christian norm, yeah. right? Because so we have to reframe these questions if we're actually working towards equality and working to make sure folks can practice their religions freely. Because I know, those questions re inherently has, set up a norm. Religion has nothing to do with this, but vegetarians and vegans also don't want to eat pork. But that's a whole other matter. You, you <laughs> begin your exploration of citizenship not at the country's founding, but with Barack Obama, the, our 44th president. Yeah, um, President Obama actually, uh, the experiences um, he had um, are quite illustrative to think about um, all that goes into how we think about American citizenship. For example, um, he had a father who was not a U.S. citizen was from Kenya, and some of the images always relayed through when he was running for um, president and then during the eight years he served, was showing um, his relatives potentially back in Kenya and really depicting them as being very backwards and uncivilized and trying to peg that on him. Um, his name, Barack Hussein Obama, um, when his political opponents wanted to remind people that he is not one of us, you would all often hear them not only say Hussein, but really emphasize that in pronunciation. Then there's the part where he grew up in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, bringing up this idea of, well, he's, you know, he's partially perhaps from over there, and it conjures up this idea of Asians and Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners. You have Asian Americans here who've been here three, four, five generations that are not still considered American and are asked, well, where are you from? So that was coming along in President Obama's story. And then while President Obama identified as a Christian, um, that was not only contested and questioned, but also African American uh, Christianity is not something familiar to a white Christianity. And so that was another way uh, that he was set apart. So just these four factors uh, combined, you know, to really illuminate um, all the questions that arise for who is a citizen, and then, of course, who could be our president. 
We've mentioned citizenship laws, but how much of an influence did European Christianity have on the institution of slavery, on manifest destiny in the Western and the westward expansion, uh, on immigration in general? Yeah, uh, Christianity uh, is there from the very beginning. Um, we have a papal decree um, in the 15th century with the doctrine of discovery that essentially said that if the European empires come upon land not inhabited by Christians and claimed for a monarchy, it's theirs. We, we actually did a, 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 talked a lot about this on a recent show because I guess discussed the doctrine of Christian discovery. Uh, in, in 1452, Pope Nicholas V authorized any European Christian monarch who discovers non-Christian lands has a right to claim a superior and paramount title to those lands and also its non-Christian peoples. And that's, uh, that's a justification for slavery. That's and that's something that continued into this country? Yes, absolutely. It was the justification for slavery. It was the justification for um, the killing of Native Americans and the taking of land. And that's what the whole goal was, sea to shining sea, right? Because this has all been ordained by God. And so Christianity is there from the get-go and before. And then you have recent things like the white supremacist marchers in Charlottesville chanting, the Jews shall not replace us. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure what they thought they were going to be, the Jews were going to replace, it, replace them with other than joining their group. Well, um, right, that's a common theme, unfortunately, throughout history, throughout world history and United States history, the way that Jews have been seen as the enemy, Jews have been seen as the other. And George Soros. Was, I'm sorry? George Soros says behind everything that that right. a bunch of people disagree with. That's right. I mean, this idea of the Jewish conspiracy that they're trying to take over is nothing new. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, a really perfect area, actually, a perfect example, um, that if we aren't teaching this, these things that have happened, if we aren't teaching the thousand times throughout world history that Jews have been blamed um, and have been criticized and have been persecuted, and then, of course, we know during World War II what Hitler was trying to do in terms of annihilation, it's going to keep coming up. I mean, what happened in Charlottesville in the summer of 20, in August of 2017 was alarming, but it's been, it's, it's been there. It's that time it was really on the national stage, but we've got um, smaller events often happening that are not getting the attention they should. Even before World War II, we had Father Coughlin, rather popular uh, preacher on, on the radio, being spouting anti-Semitic things. Uh, isn't the phrase, the separation of church and state, derived from a term coined by Thomas Jefferson, uh, who said, the wall of separation between church and state? What did he mean by a wall? And uh, has, has, uh, uh, doesn't it suggest the creation of a secular state? Well, that's, <laughs> that's what we've been debating for the last 200 years, isn't it? Um, he uh, wrote that phrase, a wall of separation of church and state, in a letter uh, to the Danbury, um, Baptist, uh, Danbury congregation in Connecticut because they were concerned about which denomination um, 
would have potentially become a state religion, and they were concerned that we didn't have one. This was, letter was in 1802. And his goal there was to uh, assuage their fears that there wasn't going to be a denominational takeover. The interesting thing is this letter, uh, this phrase was almost forgotten um, until the 1940s and 50s when we started seeing um, some cases around religion um, and education, and then in the 60s we get cases around religion and schools. Um, the Supreme Court referenced never. it in a 1947 case. Yes, um, the 1947 case with Everson. Hmm. Um, and the goal was never to, to take religion out of society. The goal was to make sure government didn't have a say in how you could practice. The truth is government had a say in how you could practice, particularly if you were, have been of a non-Protestant faith. But rather than being a protection for the religious freedoms of the people, you argue that the First Amendment was ultimately designed to be a religious mutual assurance pact agreed upon by the major competing Protestant denominations in the original 13 colonies. Uh, how did that work? Well, I, the, there is a sense that, you know, and again, this is somewhat part of our mythology, that um, everybody came together um, and nobody wanted an official state religion, and that's how we got no state religion. And that's not the entire story. Um, there was a little bit of what I kind of call middle school politics going on here, which is if I can't have it my way, you're not going to get it your way. And that was a way to make sure that's the mutual assurance pact. It was a way to make sure that uh, one denomination wasn't favored and that we did end up with a, on paper at least, a secular democracy. I have to take a little break here. I'll be back with more of this conversation in a few minutes on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. continue this conversation about white Christian privilege, the illusion of religious equality in America, published by New York University Press. Uh, and my guest, uh, Kiati Y. Joshi, professor of, uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson University, the author of a number, author and co-author of a number of other books on related subjects. Um, now, uh, let's get back to uh, some of the, the uh, this whole matter of the ch the separation of, of church and state. Um, the Supreme Court has made all sorts of decisions on it. Um, uh, there was Engel, 1962, and, and Shemp, 1963. What were they all about? Um, well, let me also first say, Leonard, I'm, I'm hope, I hope that the book um, provides you all and brings in some resources for the radio. Uh, oh, I think it's a valuable book. Part of 
Um, I'm glad to be part of that effort. Um, Engel in 62 and Shemp in 63 are very important. Um, they were both about taking uh, prayer and Bible readings out of school. And what happened was is that instead of understanding that's what the Supreme Court was doing, uh, the conservative uh, Christian movement uh, really started marketing this as um, government is taking religion out of schools. And that's not what they were doing. They were taking God. In, uh, they were taking prayer and Bible reading. Indeed, Justice Clark, in the um, Abington v. Shemp decision, and he was writing for the majority, said that one's education is not complete without the study of religion. But the messaging from the Christian conservative movement won, and there's been a sense over the last few decades that religion doesn't belong in schools. Um, I work with teachers. I teach our you know, students who are going to become future teachers also. And there's always this sense that we can't, uh, we can't talk about religion in schools, and that's just not true. But it emanates from this idea that religion was taken out of schools by these two court cases when that's just not what they were about. It was about taking out prayer and Bible reading. Mm -hmm. So we can discuss religion and the development of religions, although we would try to do it uh, in a dispassionate way, but we would not uh, start off the day with a, pr a prayer. That's correct. We wouldn't start off the day with prayer. Uh, we would not have students engage in any kind of ritual, but you absolutely can study religions and study what rituals uh, religious groups engage in. That's how we learn about people. That's how we learn about society. You know? Oh. Um, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> um, I mean, we can't understand um, so many issues without having a framework of religion. Um, how do you understand Middle East politics? How do you understand what's going on between India and Pakistan? You know, unless you do have an understanding of religion. So we have to remember that, that it's needed in terms of understanding global events, national events. And also, sometimes people will say to me, well, we don't want religion here. Well, guess what? Religion is in the schools. They are not religiously neutral. Christianity is there in what is taught, in the holidays we get off. So we have to do away with this idea that we're working in a religion-neutral or even race-neutral society. Religion uh, just came up uh, in a Supreme Court decision uh, about Roe v. Wade. Yes, that happened, I believe, just this morning. Yes. Right? Um, and I think it's going to further, um, you know, white Christian America, and I'm, I'm categorizing it as such, is segments of white Christian America are feeling under attack. Um, and that is really instigating fear, and that's so much where our political problems and political divides are coming from. And I think this idea of um, the tearing down of monuments, some of the ways, uh, the last few Supreme Court decisions um, that have taken place, I think, are going to further um, instill fear in the conservative segment of white Christian America. You know, there is a liberal segment, but we don't often talk about that. In the subtle distinctions that are made between 
what constitutes religious practices and beliefs, you argue that Christian traditions are privileged and, and non-Christian ones are penalized. In what ways? Well, I think you think about um, how we think about prayer. You know, when you're watching television and a scene comes up, uh, what comes up is someone sitting in a pew quietly, probably hands folded. Um, it's not someone laying themselves in front of deities, um, what you might find if you go, for example, to a Hindu temple. And if you do see that, then that gets characterized, discussed as something different, as something odd, um, because the way to pray, the normal way to pray is to sit hands folded quietly. So we view so many aspects of religion through a, a Christian lens. And on a certain level, it's not necessarily right or wrong. I just need people to see that that's what we're doing so that when you are making fun of, um, for example, the way uh, some Hindu gods are depicted, we have Krishna, who is often blue. We have Mage, who is half-elephant, half-human. Well, that's seen as, you know, weird and funny because the depiction of God, which is the cover of my book, you know, is the gray, white hair flowing God with yeah. white, light skin and blue eyes. So it takes We've, us back to what's considered normal and acceptable. But the politicians, uh, in, at least in this administration, have really gotten involved in all of this. In a speech at Notre Dame, Attorney General William Barr warned of, quote, the organized destruction of religious and traditional values. And the Bible seems um, to be sending out messages. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said, quote, I keep a Bible on my desk to remind me of God's word and the truth. And of course, the President Trump, uh, in, in the, the, uh, the year he became president, newspaper headlines forecast the likelihood that the United States would be a majority-minority nation, he uh, he uh, wound up doing a photo op uh, in which he held up a Bible, even though it's been pointed out more than once, he doesn't really read the Bible. But is that a symbol? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things there that you mentioned. I mean, I think that uh, this administration particularly, but others have done it too. Um, so these are not new topics this constant linkage of American and Christianity and white Christianity, let's be clear. Um, because if we're talking about black Christianity, we say that. If we're talking about Asian Americans and Christianity, we say that. Um, when, you know, when Trump came out waving the Bible in front of St. John's Church, um, it was also, right, it's a symbol, it's signaling, I'm, I, you know, this is what this country is about. We will make it through. Everything is going to be okay because, look, here I'm talking to you and this is what I believe in. It was also a smack in the face to the 40% of the country that is not Christian. And that's not always part of the conversation these days. Uh, the conversation has often been about um, racism within the church, which is a very important topic. What we also have to do and what, what I'm talking about within the book, with the book is – how is racism, how has is, how is Christianity impacted racism? And we have to look at those. Now, in terms of the issue of demographics and what you brought up, 
um, every couple of years, and, you know, the census is going on now, and I hope everyone's um, completed or will complete their census. Um, but every couple of years we get these um, news stories about how whites, uh, white folks will be uh, the minority soon. You know, sometimes it's 2040, sometimes it's 2050. And really they're quite sensationalistic. It's really uh, meant, I think, some of them to drive at fear. And the thing is, is that just because white folks might become a numerical minority, that's not going to erase 244 years of white Christian privilege, of whiteness and Christianity being embedded in our public policies and laws. That's not going away, you know, unless we make it and we work on those. So that's why it's really important to take a step back and see how our society has been constructed. When President Trump signed Executive Order 13769, which is commonly known as the Muslim ban in, in January 2017, there were many who argued that this is not who we are as a nation. But isn't there a new racial a classification called apparently Muslim? Well, that's something that uh, we talk about in, um, in research and in activist circles because, you know, um, I... I do workshops and run institutes for educators and other people. And often when I bring up race and racism and we're talking about discrimination, people will mention Muslims as being discriminated against racially. And so I always have to remind folks that being Muslim is a religious designation, although religion is racialized in our country. And that's why we talk about this idea of apparently Muslim. So any of us who have... Um, certain physical features, brown skin, dark hair, um, can are labeled, particularly um, men, um, are seen as Muslim regardless of what faith they actually are. You suggest that applying a Christian lens to the study of other religions often reduces them to caricatures. Yeah, I, I think that because we can't understand um, the fact, well, let me rephrase that. Because we're not always aware of the fact that God, you know, some religions um, don't have an image of God. Some religions have many images of God. Um, they get othered. They get seen as other and are not taken as seriously. Um, one, w w think about if you walk into um, a home decor store and you will often find statues of Buddha, you know, and people buy that Buddha and put it in their homes. Now, you know, I don't know what is in someone's heart, as President Carter has often said, um, but, you know, are you buying that because it looks cool and, you know, you've bought into this idea it's going to bring you peace, or is it something you believe in? You know, this idea of um, religious commodification is a really, and appropriation is a real important one. Um, I, I want folks to think about this. You know, yoga studios, um, who insist on saying Sanskrit terms but butcher them, you know, um, it's, it's really disrespectful. So you've got to put some thought into this and not just acquire something because it looks cool. And all of this happens because other uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they're seen as other and not normalized. But aren't they also, uh, don't they also uh, suggest that uh, religious imagery, whether it's 
Buddhist or Hindu or Christian imagery, Michelangelo, for example, uh, that uh, religious imagery is also often just really good art. Uh, if I have a, a statue of Buddha, might I just appreciate it as as a work of, of the Asian art? You, you could, you, you could. That's where this gets really, um, there's a lot of gray area. I want folks to think about it because sometimes people are not going beyond the superficial. You know, absolutely you can appreciate it as art. But understand that for some it also carries um, significant spiritual, um, it, it conveys us, there's a lot of spirituality there in terms of that particular piece of work, artwork or an, an item. The concept of, of civil religion was popularized in the 1960s. Would that be a remedy for some of our religious tensions? Um, no. And actually, I think that the concept of civil religion has done um, a tremendous amount of harm in terms of keeping us from seeing. It's basically, I believe, been a cover-up for white Christian privilege, white Christian supremacy in our society. It kind of creates a facade of shared civic rituals that transcend religion, but it's really ignoring the Christian roots. I mean, Robert Bella, who is the one um, who coined, well, he didn't coin the phrase, Rousseau coined the phrase, but his work is what started all the scholarship on civil religion. I mean, he said Europe is like Egypt and America is the promised land. Now, you don't get more Christian mm -hmm. than that. <laughs> Just a, a couple of years ago, we, we don't have a heck of a lot more time, but I wanted to bring this up. In 2018, National Geographic issued an apology under the headline, For Decades Our Coverage Was Racist. What were they referring to? Well, I, um, as, as a child and teenager who faced a lot of bullying because of National Geographic's depictions of India, um, I would constantly hear, uh, because I was fortunate to go home to India in the summers, um, I would often hear, oh, do you have a pet elephant? You know, what's your oh, mud really? hut like? Oh, yes. Oh, I could tell you stories, Leonard. And, <laughs> um, and you know, National Geographic, when they issued that apology, it was very personal for me because it had caused me so much pain and so many other people I know. So it was great that they did it, um, and the reckoning is important. Um, they needed to go a little further and understand how Christianity was part of their colonial endeavor. I mean, National Geographic is colonialism in, a, in the sense of knowledge. And Christianity was right there with it. The way they depicted people engaged in rituals around the world, it was very much just, you know, exoticization. They're other, they're different, in some cases backwards, uncivilized. So um, we need to be looking at race and religion, um, and I'd like National Geographic to add, to provide mm. an addendum to their apology. Because you say they missed something really crucial there. Yep, very much so, which is often what has happened, and it's also symbolic of what has often happened in our country. Race and religion are really together, but because of the First Amendment, people don't see the religion, don't see the Christianity that is present along the way with whiteness. And you also point out that we can uh, legislate laws that uh, would guarantee total equality, but you can't legislate attitudes. 
Absolutely not. Um, what we're gonna, what we have to do for um, people changing their minds, and they have to change them. We can't make anybody change their mind. Is engagement. You know, right now everybody's reading a lot about race in America, which is great. But we're gonna have to do more than read. We're going to have to engage, and what that means is providing forums, providing workshops, providing institutes where people can come and kind of hash things out. They've got to be allowed to say things like, you know, well, no, I don't believe in affirmative action, or no, you know, this religion doesn't deserve to be here. There has to be a place where they can say these things to learn and process why they're thinking what they're thinking, where they've gotten their information. Um, none of this is going to happen overnight certainly not going to happen in a two-hour, you know, implicit bias training that sometimes um, <laughs> schools and companies um, want to do. I think there's a little bit of a sea change there we're seeing right now and understanding you've got to be in it for the long haul in order to really make change. Tianti Y. Joshi is a professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University, author of New Roots in America's Sacred Ground, Religion, Race, and Ethnicity in Indian America, co-editor of Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, uh, and uh, her most recent, the one we've been discussing, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America, published by New York University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to comment on this or any of our shows, you can write to me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just one last moment to ask you for your support for this station. If you value Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this operation alive. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever amount you are comfortable with. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution to become a sustaining member with a contribution of $10 or more in the name of this show, you can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. But in order to get that book, you have to sign up to become a BAI buddy right now. So please go to our website, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to support the unique in-depth content that we bring you on this show. And and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, we hope that you will do it because um, this is a really difficult time for not only WBAI, but for all public radio stations. In our case, perhaps a bit more because we don't take money from advertisers. We don't take foundation money. We rely totally on our listeners. Please make that call. We're off tomorrow, but we'll be back on Wednesday with our favorite masters of home repair, Alvin and Lawrence Hubel. We'll see you then.